Well, welcome everybody. Uh, thank, thank you for joining us for our open forum, Ask Anything. It's September 23rd. I'm uh, broadcasting from Cambridge, Massachusetts. So for me, it's 11 a.m. And I know for many of you, this is a different time zone. And uh, the majority of you, as we've gotten accustomed to, are watching uh, on a different day. So the beauty of our availability in the, on the interwebs is that uh, it's no longer uh, about being available at the right time at the right place. And so not only is it ask anything, but it's uh, anytime, anywhere. <laughs> so um, uh, I'll just start with uh, just a brief introduction and then uh, turn it over to my uh, colleagues and co-faculty and uh, also integrate our live attendees. My name is Damian Shield. I'm the Senior Director for the Institute for Medical Simulation here at the Center for Medical Simulation. And we're an independent nonprofit in the Boston area related to all of the different Harvard University Medical School and affiliated hospitals in that um, we support various programs. Mm -hmm. our, uh, one of our main areas is around uh, faculty development in experiential learning, pr primarily around simulation. And uh, when the pandemic started and travel was halted, we really wanted to have a new way of connecting with people internationally and, um, and got into, uh, with everyone's support, a weekly webinar. We've had different kinds of sessions um, that really meant to connect the simulation community internationally, keep us available and with you. We had keynote presentations and panels. We have now some new formats like open forum like this, as well as meet the author. We had last week a great conversation with Jeff Cooper, who is a professor of anesthesia and our founding director about a, a recent paper he wrote about a case uh, of a, uh, investigation of patient safety and error that he did in the 1980s and just recently published uh, as forthcoming on, S on the Simulation in Healthcare Journal. And that's, that's a really fun new format that we have. So we appreciate all of your support because that motivates us to promote these courses and put them on. And um, it's just evolving slowly. As I mentioned, a lot of the content is available for you to enjoy and share through our website. There's a lot of resources at www.harvardmedicine.org and there's a QR code that you can avail yourself. And uh, we'd also love for your suggestions as the topics of professional development and um, also increasing your skills in education have uh, been working, but we're also looking to serve your needs. So please do let us know what you're interested in. For today's session, um, I'd like to start with welcome and introductions. That's going to include us uh, on the panel as well as folks who are joining. We'll ask you to use the Q&A function to introduce yourself, let us know who, your name, where you're logging in from, and any questions that you might have. Please start uh, giving some of those um, for us. Some folks re registered and gave us some questions in advance, and we'll be tackling those as well. We'll have an open forum and then towards the end, I'll share with you the next few weekly webinars and a couple of other future opportunities. So with, uh, with that as my introductory remarks, I'd like to invite uh, Jenny and Chris, my friends and colleagues to 
share a bit about your background, your role at CMS, and anything else you'd like to share in terms of what you're uh, thinking about and working on today. Start with Jenny. Hello, everybody. I'm really weirdly challenged and excited by this moment in time. Um, as an organizational behavior scholar and the executive director of the Center for Medical Simulation, I am spending most of my time thinking about how do we as simulationists reinvent ourselves in this time. And um, so what I'm uh, excited to talk about today are your questions regarding how we reinvent and how we plug ourselves in as simulationists. Um, one of my areas of passion is how do we simultaneously hold ourselves to high standards for excellent performance in healthcare or management or meetings or all the different things we have to do every day while um, holding high regard for each other. So that's hard to do sometimes, easy to judge, easy to be nice, hard to do both together. Um, so that's kind of what I'll try to bring to the party today. I'm very happy to be here with all of you. That's great, Jenny. It makes me think of how do we fit in self-care in the right ways. So look forward to hearing more about that. Thanks, Damien. Great Thanks talk. for joining. Chris Rusin. Hey, everybody. Thanks, Damien. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks, Anne. And hello to everybody. Um, I'm Chris Rusin. I'm Senior Director for Educational Leadership uh, and International Programs at the Center for Medical Simulation. I am a PhD organizational behaviorist. I really love to think about, I'm glad this field exists um, and that I could study in that area because I'm fascinated with how people work together. What happens when we try to team up? Um, what happens to us emotionally, um, positively or negatively, depending upon what we do? How can we organize our efforts such that we're more successful and safer and better off and psychologically um, doing better. So very excited to kind of take those concepts and bring those to healthcare about six years ago when, when that um, happened with me. And these days, incredibly excited, like, just like Jenny said, um, there's this challenge before us. How can we use learning processes? How can we use simulation? Um, to help us in this incredibly different and difficult moment, and also a moment I think that's filled with lots of opportunity that we can talk about today to, like Jenny said, reinvent ourselves. And uh, just great. I love open forums, so excited to hear what people ask and excited to see where we go today. It's so interesting to hear you both introduce yourselves. Of course, I've uh, been in this situation with you many times, and I think that when we introduce ourselves, part of what we're doing is we're putting out uh, part of our professional identity. And at the same time, I, I know that we all wear so many different hats. And so, you know, there's the scholars in you, there's the, uh, you know, at the, at the simulation bedside educator side in you, there's the one-on-one -on -one mentor in you, there's the, the writer in you and I, I, it makes me think of this presentation I saw by Peter Diekman when he said like, we have these different parts of our personality that come out that are our, like our mask or our hats. Mm. And um, so, yeah, so uh, I think that's 
similar happens for those of us with clinical backgrounds. We also have our, I have my emergency physician side of me and then my bedside educator side of me and my mentor side of me. And, mm. So that's always fun. Yes. So, um, you know, in preparation for this session, I had this dilemma that uh, I was I was talking with Ann Mullen, our program manager, about because we were wondering, you know, people supply us questions when they register. And I wasn't sure when we present those questions, should we be highlighting from whom they're uh, coming from or, or should that be confidential? And I'm having the same dilemma here. I would love for people who have joined uh, to the live session here to introduce themselves through the Q&A and uh, then I could we could uh, say who you are. On the other hand, if you're joining and don't write in the Q&A, I feel like I don't want to betray the trust and say, oh, welcome. So, um, I, you know, I could certainly share that I, I do see people from many continents. I see folks joining from the US and Canada and India and uh, some folks that I'm not immediately recognizing uh, their names. Um, and, but I, like I said, I'm hesitant to, to uh, call on anyone explicitly. Jenny, Chris, any thoughts? Yeah, so let me just invite anybody who is here to please just introduce yourself on the chat if you're comfortable doing so. Uh, so we can say hi to you and uh, talk to you about what are your interests. And uh, if you choose not to, no problem. I think Damien will probably roll ahead with the questions that we got in advance. But uh, we certainly prefer to interact with all of you. And, uh, and I think there's this broader question because the, um, like many uh, CME and simulation societies, the uh, Society for Simulation and Healthcare just announced that IMSH is gonna be online or virtual this year. And so how we connect, how we interact is going to be a big part of uh, the near term. But I think the future future, I think the COVID um, pandemic and situation um, is not just gonna change the pre-vaccine period, but forever. So um, thank you, Gitanjali Ramachandra for saying good morning, would love to know where you're from and where you're joining. Um, oh yeah, there I see Gita from PD Stars. Oh, fantastic. That's a leading organization in, in India that I know I've been connected throughout the years. Um, it looks like they're saying hi to you, Chris, as well. Hi, hi Gita. Gardner, <laughs> one of the senior directors, a key person on our team. Glad to see you here. Sheba from the core faculty in OBGYN and in the UAE, but uh, originally from India. Great to have you as well. I love seeing my friends on these, uh, uh, in these forums. It's great. Gita, so great to hear from you. Very nice. So um, as you're, um, I appreciate those of you who have introduced yourself and I would like to invite you um, to, um, you know, just continue to interact with us. I know it's, it, it says Q&A and it's a little, could be a little awkward to interact through that. It's the best that we can do right now, given bandwidth and our, and our platform. Uh, and I'll get our conversation started with a couple of questions that we, that we did have. And um, 
look forward to uh, this as an ongoing um, interaction throughout this this hour. So Jenny, Chris, I love uh, this Ask Anything forum in a, in part because it comes uh, as it comes on the week after our online our healthcare simulation essentials online course. The during last week, I know I was fully engaged connecting with participants. We had 21 people from all over the world working on their simulation skills. Many of their questions got answered during the course and some were sort of left in the air as next steps. And um, I'm just coming off a really uh, a high, if you will, because they, um, they are people who were just either starting a new career and entering the sim world or they've been in sim and taking their next step. I'm just wondering how was your experience teaching and uh, last week and what are you thinking about this week with regards to it? I mean, we've we've always had an emphasis at, at CMS on giving people practical skills that they take home and use. And for me, that's absolutely thrilling. I love connecting to people's projects. Um, and I, I think that the in the new curriculum, the skill sets that we're giving people um, that allow them to create deep partnerships back in their, their home institutions, their home organizations, their hospitals, their schools. Um, it's really allowing people to design kind of fully realized projects and, and to have a very strong idea about what they want to do when they return home and to have made some incredible, incredible progress during the course. So it makes me even more excited. I mean, the projects are just so three-dimensional as people are working on them. Um, Jenny, I don't know how you, how you feel about that, but for me, that was absolutely thrilling. Yeah, I'd say um, I agree. And the thing, other thing that was thrilling for me was that creating a sense of community and peer support, mentor support, um, joy in a shared project across the week of, of just being teachers and learners together worked mm. online. You know, I think we've all had a lot of anxiety as to whether the beautiful sense of connection that I think is a wellspring for so many of us would transfer to the online environment. And mm. I certainly was delighted by that. Um, yeah. I, and, I, I mean, spending the week with the, you know, these 20, well, 20 plus participants and plus all the rest of the faculty is a phenomenally rich way to spend a week. And then, you know, in the next week, you kind of miss all of those people. Yeah, that too. Mm -hmm. Oh, that little withdrawal. Yeah, I mean, I, I got at least two emails from participants. I feel like it, there's a thread there and mm -hmm. I'm connected on Twitter with two others. And and of course, it's it's just so fun and intense with amongst the faculty, so. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jenny, I totally share that. I was so nervous about connecting online, debriefing online, debriefing the debriefing online, and so pleasantly surprised that it's a lot of it just feels so similar. So mm -hmm. maybe it's because we do so much of our daily work online now, or maybe yeah. it's uh, because seeing the micro expressions and being in front of uh, folks, um, just so much of it is working. So. Mm -hmm. um, Oh, great. So Maybell, uh, who is joining from DC and um, 
And that's great because I was about to bring up a question that she um, gave us in advance. So, um, and I thank you, Mabel, for the update here. So you're working on telesim and anti-racism projects and um, coming off four ED shifts in a row. So, uh, and you're wondering if folks are doing insight to work again. So I know you're, you had uh, shared with us that you want you were hoping that we could talk about how do we promote insight to simulation and especially how do we increase engagement and take away the roadblocks to participation uh, insight to simulation being simulation activities generally paired with debriefing for either education or discovery of latent safety threats and working with intact teams in the hospital setting as opposed to in a simulation center setting and um, I think these are great questions uh, for us to talk about to start with. So uh, let's, I would say let's first talk about Insight2, then I think maybe we can come to talk a little bit about Telesim, as there are a number of questions on Telesim. And then if we don't get back to talking about anti-racism, which is important to me and I know um, to the rest of the organization and Jenny and Chris, there's a number of weekly webinars. We did two big sessions that are on our website. I thought those were great conversations and need to keep those going because um, we um, have a long way to go as I'm looking at our little panel here. Um, so, Chris, so, to you. Yeah, so May Maybell, you know, one thing I'll start off by saying is that there's, I work with a number of hospitals around the world and also with hospitals locally here in Boston. And there's a movement afoot to redefine the rules of gatherings such that we can allow simulation to happen in, in situ. Um, and so, you know, it's okay to bring 10 people together if you're doing it for simulation that has a practical application in the moment. And I think it's, I've seen a number of these rules passed very, very, very recently. Um, so there's a recognition that we need this sort of practice in our patient care spaces that with how rapidly the environment is changing and with how rapidly conditions change, illnesses change, ideas about how to treat patients and organize care change, we absolutely need ways of practicing kind of at or near the point of care. And so there is recognition of this. One important thing to do is to change a hospital's policy about gatherings because you need to allow, you need to formally allow the courses to happen um, in this moment. Um, and differentiate getting together for sim from getting together for other reasons. And so that's, I've noticed that I find it extremely encouraging and we're trying to shape that with the hospitals that we work with. I'll say, I, I think my thoughts on this are completely in evolution. I, I mm -hmm. feel like there's so much to be thoughtful about that I'm not yet sure if I have a very, very clear view. We, I did some work both at CMS and also with um, an international group collaborating on how to reopen SIM centers. And we're lucky to have that published in advances and simulation. We discussed it in our Ask Anything uh, last month. Um, having said that, I'm thinking about a couple of things. One is for in situ simulation, the participants are generally going to be scheduled to be there for work. So in a way, they're already allowed to be there. Of course, 
Yeah. We're at Brigham and Women's Hospital where I do my clinical. Our, our lounge where we have lunch, which would typically be where we would go do an insight to debriefing, is now highly restricted. The tables are for one person and it's much less occupancy. So it wouldn't be business as usual, but folks would be there anyway. Yeah. I'm thinking that having recently read the manifesto that many of our colleagues have, um, many of our colleagues have published in uh, BMJ Stell, they called for protecting simulation technicians and professionals who are putting on the sim uh, for, you know, from unnecessary exposure. So in a way I, I'd have to think about, okay, well, who's gonna bring in the mannequin or are we gonna hire an actor and they gonna be unnecessarily um, exposed? And so my fine, so I'm still thinking about how to do that, how to do that safely. What is the social distancing and PPE necessary and uh, possible to make insight to sim happen? I've got two other thoughts and then I'd love to turn to Jenny. Mm. Uh, one is, well, do we need to do insight to sim or can we reach those goals by debriefing the actual cases that are happening or gathering people for experiential learning that doesn't have to do with simulation? What are some of the other tools in our tool chest as uh, simulation leaders? And finally, well, what is the purpose? What, how does this make sense for the institutional mission and what are the KPIs we're trying to affect? And then I might uh, better know whether uh, it's time to restart our our insight to simulation project. So if, is it mission critical? Is it especially critical now during this pre-second surge? What are What is the insight to sim project about? Because there's great diversity in why people do insight to sim. Um, so those are just some thoughts on the topic from mm. my end. Jenny? Yeah, thanks, uh, Damien. And Mabel, feel free to uh, text us back in the Q&A as you react to this. I'd love to get your take and further comments or questions or anybody on the uh, on this uh, call with us. So I've been a bit of a student of uh, Chris Rusin over the last year and a half thinking about how do we position simulation to solve point of care problems. And so one of the thoughts I have about that, Maybell, is there are things that we are still being asked to do or simulationists are being required to do just as we were when the COVID surges started here in the Northeast. And I guess I'm wondering whether we could leverage such things as, you know, continuing training on um, safe establishment of an airway in the OR with proper infection control and PPE and et cetera, um, as a way to build bridges to broadening that, because there are certain things that are institutions are still pulling us to do. And instead of us having to sell them on in-situ sim, maybe we're better off solving whatever their ongoing PPE problems are. And I'll just name, and infection control problems are, I'll just name a few that I have heard about. So one is um, goals of care conversations um, are still something that our pediatric um, colleagues who don't often have kind of end of life conversations 
were having to get better at, their residents were having to get better at there. And a lot of that could be done online in a way, but some of that involves communicating through the shut door of a room or um, new skills for these people. Um, I already gave the airway example and there's, you know, I'm sure people on this call may have a few others. So I think my, my strategy would be let them pull us and then bridge from there. But love to get other, you know, people who are attending, love to get your take. Well, Roxanne Gardner is sharing that um, the, her department at the Brigham in obstetrics and on the labor floor, they're back to doing one or two days of IPE drills in situ with being mindful of the number of participants and focusing not just on CRM, but also introducing and familiarizing the staff with the new bundles of clinical care management. So very, I think, mission critical, mission specific, which I think speaks to the engagement question, which is, I think it's much easier to get people engaged in insight to sim when there is a need to know when it's relevant, which requires, in my view, that we're very transparent and clear about what are the things we're going to be doing. So, mm -hmm. so I think, whereas in the past there was a culture of surprise mock codes that people felt unprepared for and possibly um, been put on display in an area that's not your strongest, if you instead say, look, we're going to do in situ sim on this topic, please be on the lookout. If there's no surprise, we just all really want to practice, um, you know, what happens when we're getting a transfer from the OR and instead of being as stable as they were built, they suddenly crash. How do we react to that? Be on the lookout for that deteriorating patient. I think that's a need that people have. We want to succeed. We want to excel and we know what's coming. Yep. I think the uh, I went at, at IMSH last year. I was very impressed with the University of Alabama Birmingham group. Um, their presentation on Insight to Sim. I think that um, April Bell and Marjorie Lee White's concept of a institutional pre-brief that they you know they just send it out by email, message it. Um, I thought that was really helpful. Hmm. Um, so I'm just uh, looking at Maybell's comment back about she liked the idea of debriefing real events more consistently. And what that suggests to me, everybody, is whether it, we call it an institutional pre-brief, whether we call it a longitudinal pre-brief, whether we uh, call it building partnership in advance. I'm yeah. thinking, Maybell and others, that maybe part of our attention needs to be directed to creating pre-agreements that we have a golden moment to learn from real events now and potentially some routine debriefing, um, you know, at the end of a patient transfer or routine debriefing um, at the end of the management of a trauma in the emergency department. Or I can imagine there are other, you know, routine things that happen in the emergency department that we can get 1% better at that might be uh, valuable. Let me invite Chris and Jenny for you guys to talk about uh, the Fresh Off the Press publication, which I'm sharing here about Circle Up and how this might be a possible addition or um, opportunity to replace your in situ program with a um, broader program. 
Chris, you want to tackle that? Yeah, sure. To, I'll, I'll get it started um, and we can do it together. To Maybell and others, you know, there, there are a few ways we've been thinking about debriefing real events lately. One, of course, is what you brought up, which, which is this idea that something happens, it's notable, it's positive, it was challenging, there's a great learning opportunity, and so we organize a debrief around that thing. And another way of thinking about debriefing, and it's referred to in this circle up concept in paper, is to think of debriefing as something that we're doing regularly and that we're packaging with other sorts of conversations. Like um, the circle up concept recommends that we, near the beginning of our shifts, connect with one another and have a briefing such that we plan our day, we plan to support one another, we have some quick mental rehearsals about things that are new or novel or difficult coming up that day, that we check in with one another as we work, that we talk in ways that improve learning and performance around important events, and that when we get near the end of a shift that we make time to debrief such that we're regularly, every day, every shift, doing some processing near the end of our shift. So we have this kind of regular briefing and debriefing and check-in loop and cycle that is of course just filled with massive amounts of learning and can also be used for planning other events and recognizing that we need other things and other supports. And so- I'm excited about this, Chris, because I think um, it puts the talent of simulation professionals to do debriefing in, at the point of care and gives us a lot of options um, going forward. Yeah, agreed. You know, this, the skill sets that simulation people have are really amazing skill sets. They do belong in the everyday, um, and we often isolate them and think about them as things that we do during courses when we could be applying briefing, good debriefing, good processing, good planning um, to the everyday. But the thing is, we don't have those activities typically scheduled into what we do every day. So we need to start thinking about that as something that we make time for or, or adapting existing ways of huddling to um, be a little more learningful. I think this paper and others of this last few months really expands the concept of clinical event debriefing as that event-driven, trigger-driven, problem-driven reflection and learning to a routine clinical debriefing uh, implementation of a system. Jenny, anything you'd add here before we move on to um, maybe talking about telesimulation and well, some of the opportunities of the moment? Well, if, if our participants um, are comfortable with it, I would love to hear any reactions uh, from any of them about this idea of shifting some of our attention to uh, pre-agreements with our colleagues about doing debriefing of real patients or whatever they're thinking about uh, popping simulation into uh, the real world, whether it's briefing or debriefing or something else. So please feel free to text us on that. I'd love to see what you're thinking uh, in the Q&A. Uh, I think again, the um, thing that I am having as a steady drumbeat in my own mind is a concept from one of the organizational behavior scholars whose work influenced me a lot uh, named Ed Shine. And he talked a lot about education and research as stronger, better, faster when we're asked for help. 
Um, and so I think putting more of our energy into finding out what people need and want and how to be prepared and how to be ready um, and what are their problems would be the best way for many of us simulationists to spend our time right now instead of trying to sell what we do have um, and instead try to repurpose what we're doing, reinvent what we're doing for the moment. I think that's um, very much compatible with the uh, third figure here and then I'll stop sharing the screen. But um, I think if we start thinking of whether it's simulation or these kind of interventions as not just the session themselves and circumscribed to that learning period, but really part of a system. And we think that, okay, it starts with team and vision then we're really connecting to the to the sponsors and then we can get into the logistics and the training and we'll know what to do if we have a clear a clear goal on the problem at hand i think i know when i previously ran a sim center our goal was number of sessions number of participants let's deliver simulation so um, much more on the what than the why and i think um that's a shift that's helping me now and I think is helping a lot of people. And I'll, I'll use that as a transition to, to propose a new topic for us because we got a number of questions from folks asking us to discuss telesimulation, which is the what. It is the idea that we're going to be doing simulations and experiential learning on Zoom it could take many different forms. It could be interactive on-screen discussions with actors. It could be using digital monitors to display physiology. It could also be using um, live cameras in a simulation center, participants working remotely, debriefers working remotely, and still using the sim center as the um, focus of the activity. Uh, I imagine it could take a lot of different forms too, but those are some of the ones that I've been thinking about. And so we were asked, you know, what are some applications of for effective telesimulation? Where could these ways of interacting um, be useful? And so I would ask us to kind of consider that question and also consider what are some of the problems we might be solving with telesimulation. Um, and before I hand it off, I would also say that in a way, the COVID, just like COVID has asked everybody to change the way they think and work, it's asked health systems to really get way into telehealth. I think that an opportunity for folks who are used to doing in-person immersive simulation, it's asking us to also go uh, into the tele-simulation and tele-education space. So what are your thoughts on applications of telesimulation in this day and age? Uh, Damien, can I throw in a, a few examples of things that I'm aware of that, that we've gotten involved in and, and then maybe we could share some others. Um, and I'm inviting uh, Roxanne Gardner, our Senior Director of Clinical Programs to chime in from the Q&A if she's still on because she's leading a number of these efforts. So one thing uh, that, that I think can be done with telesimulation is 
virtual simulation, as Damien noted, with vital signs and an actor patient or a still image with a voice. These are all things that we're doing, other people are doing. Uh, Dr. Roxanne Gardner, who's on the call right now, is working with our um, colleagues at the Institute uh, um, for Health Professions uh, to think about what we could do in the uh, virtual clerkship space. And so she's working on six different uh, PA uh, physician assistant clerkships um, that are gonna have some virtual simulation, some in-person simulation, and so on. I'll mention one other uh, specific example that Damien alluded to. Uh, through the Massachusetts General Hospital, uh, we got a large, uh, the hospital got a grant from a local uh, pharma uh, organization to develop uh, uh, STEM capabilities, science, technology, engineering, and math in um, Boston area high school students using medical simulation, nursing simulation. So we're using multiple modalities in that program, but one of them is literally having excellent cameras in the simulation center itself, where our emergency medicine physician colleagues and nurse colleagues are enacting various challenges and then putting out to the students who are online like this, except on Zoom with, with text capability and talking capability, what do they wanna do to manage the patient? So this is something that our colleague, uh, Jim Gordon, the chief learning officer at Mass General Hospital has doing, been doing for years with both medical students and, and uh, high school students, which is bringing them in to take care of a, a STEMI patient, for example. So we're just basically broadcasting that live onto uh, Zoom or whatever. So those are two modalities of telesim that, that are happening here. Uh, I think yeah, um, just well, you know, one of the reframings that I've got, that I've gotten or I'm in the process of this, you know, over the last six months is that I, you know, whereas I think that simulation is the bee's knees and want to be in person and think it's the best, it's possible that a, a lot of our online opportunities are actually better. So we, you can have experts from around the world. You, you can switch rooms. You can have as many rooms as you want. You can switch rooms without wasting transition time because you don't have to I mean, you have to get up so you don't cramp up and lose your muscle mass, but you don't have to go to another room. You don't have to be confused about what room you belong in. And so I think that um, this is just a welcoming time to, to say, telesim is sim. There's lots of good things we can do with it. Um, and there's probably a solution to many uh, situations waiting to happen. I, I have another angle on this, guys, which is, um, with telesim, so there are various different objectives that we think about when we think about whether we need sim or not, right? And, and sometimes we need to learn skills, practice skills. Sometimes we need to learn and understand better and practice situations. The one I always talk about is managing, recognizing and managing septic shock. <laughs> My colleagues chuckle because I say that over and over again. Um, can we do that with telesim? What can we do with telesim? Um, can we refine and improve and better understand our teamwork processes um, and therefore what can we do 
with Zoom or Telesim. And, and, and I think as we start to think about each of those problems separately, we start to understand what we can do. And it is important to think about them separately because they are separate types of activities. They're, they're different. They each have their own character and therefore they're each, they each have their own optimized curriculum. And I just want to point um, at improving teamwork. So we often think teamwork simulations are these extravagant, like carefully engineered, full body mannequin, there's bleeding, there's resuscitation happening. And then what do we do? We go and we debrief. And in that debriefing, we reflect upon what happened in the scenario, but then we tend to think about our practice more generally and how these situations occur in our real practice. And we start to share mental models and share understandings of challenges and share understandings of solutions. And that's where the magic happens, right? And that's what Center for Medical Simulation is like really, really known for is developing great debriefers and doing great debrief things. And, I, and we sometimes say simulation is just an excuse to debrief. And it's really true. And I think we're going to start to understand the power of Zoom as a great place to be for debriefing. And we may not always need that extravagant um, si simulation to get us to the right mental place to debrief what we do and to develop what we do. And that there are all kinds of possibilities for sharing mental models, developing teamwork, developing process. Um, and maybe even understanding scenarios better, maybe even understanding skills better. And we can think, we should think deeply about what we can accomplish in conversations of different types in order to accomplish the goals that we need to accomplish in the moment. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, both, we have this, uh, two other forthcoming publications, one from the clinical debriefing at the Brigham, which was nightly 9 p.m. Zoom calls, optional. Let's get people together, hear them out, see what they're learning about, see what they're innovating, see what their challenges are. Yeah. And then with our affiliate in Liège in Belgium, they were able to um, debrief multiple emergency departments and ICUs throughout the city through Zoom. It would have been impossible for a single trained debriefer to get across the city to catch all these end of shifts with our new discover phase tool that catches people at the end of a shift and um, Zoom is the enabler, not, not necessarily the, the, the downside, but the upside. So uh, yeah. I think, and one more, just looping back to Jenny's uh, sharing of um, the project for clerkship, it's really like very critical that we continue clinical education in this time when clinical education volume has been down, opportunities have are much, uh, lesson, there's a shortage of PPE. So mm -hmm. I, I think, t you know, if I, t Telesim is like plastic, like we need to be investing in it. I just gave advice to a colleague who runs a SIM program in a local hospital. I said, find out who your IT tech, ed tech support and uh, virtual learning people are in your program because you need to be partnering with them that's that's the new and exciting and we're going to come out stronger being less siloed and more connected i want to give it one more twirl uh, and ask you a, another question that came from the from participants which is what about in the developing uh and low income setting what are the opportunities for telesim in low resource countries thoughts so 
I think a really important gating mechanism there is internet or not internet. So if there is internet and the bandwidth is sufficient for streaming, sound, video, et cetera, then all, everything we've spoken about here to some degree can work. If the bandwidth is narrower, such that video is not a, a reasonable option, one of the things we've done at the MGH um, in our OR teams for qualified staff course over the last couple months is we use an audio trigger tape of something going wrong in the OR, which we then discuss in a debriefing. So that's a much lower um, bandwidth requirement. Uh, and then the last thing there is in the absence of um, adequate bandwidth for easy tele, uh, teleconnection, um, if there are landlines, again, we can do something around um, audio transfer. So my, my knowledge in this area is somewhat limited, but I have had a couple conversations with colleagues around the world about this limited bandwidth challenge and how do we get around it. So that's what I'm speaking to. Uh, others on the call may have some other thoughts on this. It'd be nice to have Gita on uh, featured as a as a presenter on a on a future session of this, Damien, because she has such experience doing this. Um, I you know one thing I'll say is if you can get people on a video call and they have their own box, <laughs> you know, each of the three of us have our own box here. And there's, there's actually this, there can be really nice um, kind of equalizing effects there. People have their space on the screen and they have their opportunity to speak. And then it's up to the facilitator to create conversation that includes all voices. But, but if you can get the technology to people, you can create great conversations, just referring back to my previous comment. Um, and give people equal voice in a conversation, which can be a really nice feature of Zoom, I've found. Yeah, as I was thinking about the question, I, I was thinking of no major difference. The only thing that I was really came to mind right away is, I, and I wasn't, is I would not try to design a telesim from, from here in Boston for someone in a different uh, resource setting. I would work with them. Um, they really should be the driver. I, I think that that would be my, you know, if there's a, if there's a, if there's a concerning side of the teletechnology that we could find ourselves anywhere, I would just want to make sure that we're not repeating, uh, you know, any kind of colonial and post-colonial negative impacts and that we're not pushing our own views and values uh, you know, externally, and I, that's yeah, Damien, where yeah. I was with my thinking. I want to highlight what you said, which is, it's, yeah, we're not presenting finished solutions. I'm just saying the same thing you just said, but I liked it so much, Damien, I want to say it again, which is, you know, we would always partner up with someone, understand their conditions very carefully, um, yeah. and then build something that works for them. And so... Yeah, so Gita and, and Gita's taking your invitation to pop in to say, yeah, we're we're taking the leap monitors from I think from that's the Laird all software. We're using Zoom. And by the way, we have no connection to any of the companies and certainly not sponsoring this this mm -hmm. session. Mm -hmm. Um, but we're using the dynamic monitor 
um, to do simulation sessions uh, in the country. Um, in and, those Chris, and Damien, uh, Maybell popped in the ASAP SIM website here, which I'm just going to flash on the screen for a second, uh, which has uh, all these little online resources for doing things online. Mm. So that's, that's cool. Um, and, you know, there are other, the um, uh, Ann Mullen, I'm blocking on the name of the, the box for uh, OR safety that's available from uh, Alan Mary and others. Uh, all those materials are another great. Oh, um, life box. Life box. Thank you, Damien. Mm. Uh, so that's another uh, great product that potentially could be repurposed and demonstrated and used in, in sort of a bridging method from one place to another with the life box actually in place. You know, Damien, if you don't mind, my mind is going back to something that we talked about earlier in the conversation, which was kind of in situ sim and what you can do to start doing that again and to make that a better option. And I'm thinking about something that was done really well at Boston Children's Hospital, which was to socialize the simulation technicians or engineers as they call them to the hospital such that they are comfortable in the hospital and that the hospital is comfortable having them there. And this is a process of, um, you know, creating relationships, um, creating rotations of people such that they are working in the hospital and, and can partner up and, um, and then making it such that it becomes normal. And now you have this, capability in the hospital and, and some simulation programs and centers are are separate enough from the hospital that this is not in place yet others have a really robust version of what i what i just spoke about but if you have simulation technicians and others who are comfortable in the hospital now you can mobilize them just in time to the places where rehearsal are necessary and training are yeah necessary. like in, in COVID speak is like who's an essential worker is yeah, same stuff an essential worker, and if so, you've you've reached that state that you're describing, where your sim team is embedded to the hospital, and therefore they have full access, and uh, they're up there. And if if they're non-essential and they're working from home, then then they might depend on telesim to make it happen. And one, I'm I'm just going with this as a final inspiration is somebody should invent the value of telesim in situ. Who, how do we pop in to the clinical settings virtually such that we're doing the in situ work without being on site? Maybe there's an application for that. And, um, and, I'm, and, if you, and then one last twirl on that is if you have standardized patients, secret shopper type, simulations for your telehealth providers, that's telesim in situ. And it uh, would probably yield some valuable um, course correction and, and data to support the program and, and possibly to, to, to let people know how well the um, telehealth is working, which I know it's just been a major savior for, for folks that are that are sick and scared and don't want to go in. I just had a consult for a, my uh, five-year-old is still not sleeping, newsflash. So we had our sleep uh, sleep specialist telehealth visit 
and boy, I really enjoyed um, not having to drive and put the kids in the car mm. and, uh, you know, really make even more time out of our busy lives to, to make it to that appointment. And the fellow was amazing. And then she called the attending. They chatted briefly off camera. And then the attending joined the call. And then they gave us further guidance. And I, I just had such a great experience. And, and it's probably not by accident. Uh, so uh, I think telehealth's in situ sim opportunity. You heard it here. I mean, Damien, one, that's one phenomenal example of what Jenny alluded to at the beginning of the call, which was that this is the moment. We've, we've had our world shaken up and, and look at all the opportunities to adjust and look at all the opportunities for creative delivery of medicine and healthcare. Look at all the opportunities for creative delivery of, of training and simulation and debriefing. Um, how do we steady ourselves such that we can see the opportunity? I think it's one of the questions before us that we've been working on a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this is really getting to the end of our time together. So um, before I um, transition into talking about next week and some other future opportunities, um, I want to invite um, Jenny and Chris, if you have any parting thoughts um, as to either the conversation that we've been having or uh, more on the future, um, turn it to you guys uh, for your last words. I think my last word is, you know, we're all experiencing the challenges of um, continuing to do simulation in the COVID related moment. And one of the questions we got ahead of time was something about, you know, how are we handling the COVID blockade and um, of SIM? And I think what I'd like to leave myself and all of you with is whenever we experience resistance to something we're trying to do, um, I try to look to myself first. Um, have I asked for the correct advice? Have I uh, listened well enough? So I'm finding that if I approach my clinical colleagues and say, hey, you know, I'm trying to help out with X clinical problem, or I'm help, trying to help out with Y issue. Can you advise me a little on what are your what are your pain points? Um, what are you What are your precious goals? And then I take that info and try to figure out how I can use simulation to meet them. So, uh, put briefly, resistance is a trigger to me that I have not done my listening well or my questions well, and I need to rethink. Mm. I would say, well, what she said, um, but the opportunity, it, it's just so intuitive that in this ever-changing world and rapidly changing world that we need to learn. We need learning routines to allow us to adapt and keep up and even get ahead. Um, and that it feels good to learn as well. And we know that's good for people and we need psychological support right now. So it's obvious that we need learning. It's a very, very simple argument to make. And it but, would be easy to kind of block it out and cut it out. So I'm so glad you're saying that. Chris. That's right. So how do we create the partnerships and the conversations such that we get back to learning? I think Maybell's question, you know, are people doing in situ again? It's like, are we doing the things that we need to do to support what we need? Um, 
is a really great question. And, and, and let's get to having those conversations such that learning re-enters the picture, I think is, is the inspiration that I, that I have. So great, Chris. Um, I think next week's session on design thinking and form simulation may be a really good intersection of praxis where the theories of design thinking and how we solve uh, institutional or educational problems will really come together. I'm very excited for Jenny to host a session with Carrie White, Christopher Hicks, and Andrew Petrosniak um, from the University of Toronto. Um, I know they've written about this topic. They've done wonderful workshops um, about it. And next week we'll have them live in this forum. And uh, that session will also be recorded and available for those who can't make it. Jenny, would you add anything further? On uh, just that? that they've been embedding simulation in their hospital, St. Michael's, and they uh, used a longitudinal approach to listening, querying, testing, using simulation to build out their new emergency department. And it was entirely built in this iterative process of design thinking plus simulation. So it's a really mm -hmm. exciting journey and look forward to sharing it with uh, so cool. everybody. Yeah, I think it's going to be a great session. Um, other opportunities, we have a, a healthcare simulation essentials course in October and in November. Um, we are dealing with a lot of these concepts and keep on making it 1% better. So many of us will be teaching in those courses. We have the Dash Raider training, which is a peer faculty development opportunity. You learn all about the debriefing assessment and simulation in healthcare and uh, how to observe and assess the quality of the debriefings in front of you. That's a great four-hour workshop that because we all need better skills to teach online and engage people, that Mary Faye is leading a, a wonderful three-day course in January. We had very successful course of that this uh, the last couple of months and we're looking forward to that and uh, just because this is the time for us to continue moving online. We've just uh, decided to offer the advanced instructor course. That's the second session that follows their initial week-long healthcare simulation essentials. The, the week-long, or sorry, the four-day program that really takes a look introspectively to think about your role as an educator and how to mentor and develop others that advanced course is gonna be online as well in February. I'm personally very excited that we've been able to transition online, Jenny and Chris and others, because that has just taken away so much of the uncertainty of, is it happening? How am I getting to that course? Will it get canceled? What if someone's, you know, has a problem at home? So to me that I'm feeling a lot of calm in that, it's like control what you can control and I'm so glad that uh, at least I feel that the simulation community is thriving online. I um, look forward to connecting with you and everyone else further in this forum. And for anybody who's uh, wanting something more specialized, more tailored to your organization, Mary, myself, Jenny, Chris, and others, we've been also quite successful with our coaching and consulting practice that's been working really well online as well. And just like in other domains, 
would be able to gather a lot of people together and make connections. So if you have any specific needs, do reach out. We'd be glad to talk about uh, what that might look like for you and your organization. Big thanks to everyone again who joined, Jenny, Chris, Anne, and the rest of our team, and those of you who joined uh, for the session, those of you who are joining in the future, I look forward to seeing you there. Have a great week, everyone. See you next week. Bye -bye. Thank you.